you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Hey, 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 listening audience, welcome back to Guns and Mental Health. This podcast is, as always, brought to you by Arms Corps. We're so, so thankful for Arms Corps to support us in what we're doing. We really invite all the industry leaders from the firearms community to kick down and really support what we're doing. The podcast is just one way of reaching people, um, but we have so many more things that you know, Mike and I will talk about in time. Uh, but speaking of Mike, hello, Michael. How are you, sir? Hello, sir. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm up here in 78-degree uh, Reno, Nevada in the middle of October, but sitting in a 63-degree office because it just doesn't warm up as quickly during the day as it cools down at night. <laughs> You're in Vegas, and it's hot there, too. I'll, t- I'll take it, though. I, was, I just got back from a four-day retreat in Orlando. I sat in humidity like you wouldn't believe. Um, it feels good to be back in Vegas, and I, I welcome the cooler weather uh, because I just don't do humidity well. I, that is something I discovered about myself. Well, I knew it, but I got reminded. <laughs> you it know. does make your skin nicer, though. I, I have I have noticed that. Well, I'll sacrifice that part for yeah. staying dry and not be, feeling being able to, to breathe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but it, well. You're not alone down there in Las Vegas in the uh, in-home studio. I noticed that we have uh, Myra Fukuno. Um, hello, Myra. How are you? I'm doing well, Jake. How are you? I'm awesome. Thanks. And I, I had a privilege of meeting you back in uh, January before the world ended at uh, <laughs> SHOT Show. Yeah. And it was it was uh, fun talking to you for about 10 or 15 minutes. You're a big supporter of Walk the Talk America, and you're going to tell us why and uh, all that stuff. But I want Mike to to introduce you a little bit and then you can you know finish introducing yourself I suppose because you guys are you guys are friends I've only I've only known you for about 30 minutes now so well yeah and I'm excited to have you on Myra because uh, this is a long time uh, coming yeah. and we had talked about um, having her come on because she has uh, a, a very tragic but also you know I guess educational story right you can learn from this um, uh, about your past and um, we developed a friendship over time, but when we first met, we were, we were talking about you know, the topic of suicide, and both you and I have, have lost somebody that's near and dear to us, um, and you know, me being me, I, I wanted you to come on and talk about this thing, and you're just like, one day, one day, you know, <laughs> when I'm ready, and you know, it, it, it's, it's good to have you here in person to, to finally talk about this stuff, because I think you're going to help so many people, you know. So. Thanks, I hope so. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's great. We we met through the firearms industry, Jake. Um, actually, uh, a couple of the influencers that we know, um, like Tracy mm-hmm. Guns and um, Joanna. Yeah, Joanna, Vegas Gun Girl, and Carrie Sloan from We the Female. We met at a dinner one night, and uh, we, we were kind of sitting across from each other, and we were just making small talk. Um, and it turns out that we have a lot of things in common, but one of them being something tragic. Uh, 
But then she, you know, you got into Walk the Talk when I was telling you about Walk the Talk America. And then from there, I mean, you've gotten, you've taken Walk the Talk America. You got us into the Fitness Expo uh, in L.A. <laughs> like we branched out into other areas in life. So, sure. uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for, for the support that you've always been giving you. You are big in the MMA world. Um, well, I wouldn't say I'm big in the MMA oh, world. Oh, stop. She's, be, she, she's, being, she's being humble. But if you go to an MMA event with her, she's she walks around, right? It's like walking with the mayor or something. Uh, everybody knows who she is, and there's a reason for that. Uh, but she's very close to the MMA world. So it's kind of cool, especially for a guy like me who's like a MMA fanboy. Um you know, to kind of listen to her stories or like when we walk past somebody, she's like, you know, that is or that is or that was. And, um, you know, bringing me to the expo out in uh, California when we did it in sure. L.A., uh, you know, we, we shared a booth with the, some of the Gracies and Ian McCall, Uncle Creepy. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of fighters stopped by the booth. It was for me. It was awesome for you. It's probably like another day. <laughs> well, I think, first of all, you're giving me too much credit, but thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but I've made a lot of friends, uh, lasting friendships in that in that community because of my relationship with Robert. Right. And why don't you kind of just uh, talk about who Robert is? And for me, I knew this story before I met you. Um, okay. I had I had read about it. Um, I have some friends at Extreme Couture. Sure. Um, you know, uh, Bristol Morundi. Like, yeah. He, you know, uh, just some friends that, that this man touched a lot of people. So why don't you just tell us who it is? So Robert Fallis was my boyfriend for um, about almost almost five years up to his suicide. Um, he was an MMA coach. He had been in the business for probably about 20 years. Um, his, his history in MMA goes back to the original Team Quest uh, with Randy Couture, Matt Linland, and Dan Henderson. Um, he cornered and coached Randy Couture through uh, multiple world titles in the UFC. Um, and fast forward however many years later, I met him in Las Vegas. It was April of 2013 um, that I met him in Vegas. He had just moved. Um, we had some mutual friends at Extreme Couture. Um, and I met him about a month after he moved. Uh, he's the reason why Misha Tate moved to Las Vegas, as well as some other fighters. Uh, he coached uh, Misha to uh, win the UFC Bantamweight uh, world title. Um, and so he's, he's, he's been around the business for a long time, and, and he created a lot of long-lasting relationships um, in the duration of his, his career. So he was very well-respected in that community. Yeah, I mean, even if you just look him up, you'll you'll see how many lives that he touched. Yeah. Uh, he's no longer with us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some of the biggest names in MMA, I mean, Chael Sonnen. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 really a list of who's who. Um, yeah. So being attached to that community in kind of a behind-the-scenes ways, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everyone knows the fighters, but sometimes they don't know the people that make these fighters great. Um, yeah, I think you have to be a real a real fan to know who the coaches are, you know, because um, most people just see the fighters and even like casual fans uh, will, will, will recognize some of the bigger fighters. But unless, unless you've, you're a real fan or you're involved in this sport, 
um, you probably don't know the coaches very well. But those who, but those who knew the coaches or knew of the coaches knew of Robert. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strange dynamic because you're kind of well, you were already around it, right? But then, you know, once you get in a relationship, mm-hmm. now you're around all these, I mean, A-list fighters. Some oh. of them are larger than life. We all know fighters that are a little kooky to get in there to begin with. <laughs> Most, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the exception that they're not kooky. <laughs> yeah, so now you're you're kind of in this world where you, you kind of yeah. get to see behind the curtain of a lot of things. and Sure, and I, and you realize even the the biggest name fighters are just people. Yeah. They are just people. Absolutely, with, with real problems and real everyday problems, too. Well, on that note, um, why don't you? Why don't we just dive in and tell sure. that story? Where would you like to begin? <laughs> well, I mean, I would just, I guess, you know, from our previous conversations, just talk about what happened and what that process was like. And um, I, I mean, I'm even interested. I think people would be interested in hearing the lead up to what you know, what issues he had had from his PTSD as a child to, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's not very often that we get to find someone that's as open as you are uh, about kind of talking about those issues and talking through those issues. Um, I know it was difficult for me uh, when when I lost the president of my company, but my dear friend, uh, Bill Strominger, is one of the reasons why I do this. Um, I was with Bill for so long uh i was with him traveling with him for three months right um i was with him every day uh talking to him every day so then when when he took his own life like i had to not only did i have to find a way to like to get through it and grieve like i you know but everyone wanted to talk to me everybody wanted to find an answer you know um and i just didn't have i didn't have it Right. So, you know, I, I guess okay. if you could just walk us through, you know, I don't want to, yeah. you know. <laughs> okay. Um, well, when Robert and I started dating, um, you know, he would mention to me that he had he'd been struggling with uh, depression for, for all of his life uh, since he was a child. Um, and I always thought I knew what that meant. Um, he would tell me, and I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I understand. Um, but I really did not understand at all. Because I'm not someone that ever dealt with depression or thoughts of suicide. Um, I, I, I feel like I'm someone who never before struggled with that. So I could only understand it to the depth that I, that I knew it, which was not very, which was not very much. Um, but he was raised in a home that was, uh, his family, they were devout Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and I won't get into to that religion, but um, there was a lot of religious guilt growing up. Uh, he had two brothers and a sister. Um, he was the youngest one in his family. Um, when he was about six years old, his 
sister, which is the oldest child in their family, um, she was excommunicated from the church. Um, and that meant she was disowned by her family. Like, their, their parents kicked her out. She was never to come back. Um, and so in Robert's eyes, as a six-year-old boy, like, he lost his sister. His sister was dead because they were not allowed to speak of her. Um, when Robert was 12, uh, his brother, his um, oldest brother, was also disfellowshipped by the church, and therefore he was disowned by the family. So by the time Robert was 12, he had lost his brother and sister to, to what he felt like was death. Um, when he was six years old, after his sister was excommunicated or disfellowshipped, um, those are his earliest, earliest memories of depression. It was when his brother Rick, that was disfellowshipped, and disowned by the family um, when Robert was 12 uh, were his first memories of suicide. And so as a child, he, him and his other brother, Randy, grew up with this fear of abandonment. Um, you know, if, if they didn't live a certain way, if they didn't act a certain way, if they didn't believe in certain things, then they would be abandoned by their, by their parents. Like they would be disfellowshipped by the church, and they would be They would be disowned by their family. Right. Um, and about a year and a half after Robert and I started dating, his brother Randy uh, hung himself, and it was after that that I. Um, really started to pay attention to Robert's moods. Um, like, it made me a much better listener because now I wasn't listening for me, I was listening for him. Right. And um, that's when I realized how deep his depression really ran. Um. Okay. Hey, listen, I don't think there's anybody that would be listening to this right now and not saying it's okay. Uh, yeah. And, and honestly, Myra, just to buy you some time, because um, I don't want to pull you out of that. That's not what we want to do. I want to give the listening audience the idea that this is not only permissible, but invited. You're supposed to feel stuff. You're not yeah. supposed to avoid stuff down, bail out, evade, ignore, rationalize, explain away. No, you're supposed to feel your emotions. And yeah. anybody who's listened to me for any length of time knows that I'm all about emotional functioning. So it's it's not only 100% appropriate, it's, it's physiologically, biologically, uh, evolutionarily necessary. That we that we do this, and uh, the message that culture sends us, I think, sometimes is, you know, don't do that. Just suck it up. Get through the podcast, man. No, no, this is a raw, vulnerable time that yeah. we want to we want to demonstrate that, and I appreciate you modeling it for people. So thank oh. you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It feels good. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, Robert was, in a lot of ways, he was more than just a coach for people. He was. You know, their brother, he was a father figure. 
um, he was a mentor. Um, into it was up until his brother's suicide that I really only saw the mask that everyone else saw. Um, he wore that mask well. You know, he 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 put on a show very well to to mask to hide his uh, depression and his struggles from other people. Um, I, I know that he felt that he couldn't demonstrate those things um, in front of other people, like in front of the people who, who needed him and who relied on him to be this strong figure that had all the answers for everyone else. Um, so it was, it was really interesting to watch and to feel him shift and change over time between his brother's suicide and, and his. Like, there was... There was a... I don't want to say that there was a pattern, but there were definitely tells that he had that I picked up along the way. You know, whether it was, like, the kind of music that he would be listening to or the kinds of television shows that he would watch. Um, I started to be able to see when he would laugh and smile through his pain. Uh, we were living together at the time, so so I think I could see a lot what other people couldn't. You know, and you just live with someone and see them day to day. You do, you do. If if you're paying attention, you know you know where their changes are. Um. And I had to figure out when to push and when to pull back. Um, I knew he was he was very sensitive to 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 me, like I because I was the one that was closest to him. Um, and you know, I, I think there's a misconception that people assume that the person closest to you is the person who you lean on for the most support for the most help. But I think in a lot of cases you try to protect the people that are closest to you, you know? Yeah, I, I could agree with that. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, I know for, for me, I, I'm going to, I'm going to tell this story here that I'm not necessarily proud of. Um, I had a, a girlfriend in college and her name was Allison. And at one point we, we were talking about marriage and everything like that. And then I graduated from college she was supposed to go with me back to New Jersey and she never showed up. <laughs> and, um, years later we developed a friendship and, and, you know, dated a few times on and off, but, um, eventually she took her own life. Um, and she was in a relationship with a, a new guy. She had been in a relationship with a, cu- a couple of years. And I remember in my head, and this is, this is when I was young and naive and, and, and you know me, Myra, and you know me, Jake, <laughs> uh, I will say stupid shit. Okay, uh, stupid shit will fly out of my mouth sometimes. Sometimes, you know, when, I, when I'm emotional or something like that, I'll say things. And there's a lot of things I've said that I regret in my life. One of the things that I'm not proud of is um, I didn't go to the funeral because I was afraid. For some reason, I channeled my energy as if it was the boyfriend's fault. Like, this happened on your watch. Right. Like, what happened? 
So I, I didn't go to the funeral because I was afraid of what I would do to him if I saw him, you know. Um, yeah. And it was that, and I tell this story because then it flipped on me one day. I was the close one to Bill. Right. And I was with him every day. And then I realized you were an idiot. Like your right. brain, your thought process in that, because I couldn't have saved Bill. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, I, I look back at all these things and it's just like, what a nightmare. For me, it's like a Twilight Zone episode, right? Like I became the exact same person I was going to attack. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I became that guy. Um, and not realizing like, like that dude's going through so much pain right now, but who, who are you, Mike, to think like you could have prevented that if it was you in that seat? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and for you, did you ever have any issues like that? I mean, did, did, did you ever go through any emotions like that? Did anyone ever come at you? Um, like an idiot like me when I was like, <laughs> in my early twenties? <laughs> Not to my face, right? <laughs> Not to my face, um, but because he was a bit of a public figure, um, and you know the news of his suicide hit the media before his body was even identified, um, which made it really—I don't want to say difficult because I think in the end it made it better for me to deal with everything kind of face on like I I didn't have the opportunity to run from it if I wanted to you know um it hit the media like every time I would open the internet you know I'd see these sports articles like our local newspaper and it hit international news and it was um a lot of the media outlets were reporting it and it it sucked because man like (laughs) his body hasn't even been identified yet that's fucked up yeah super fucked up. And so, of course, you know, I did go on and read a little bit, you know, like, I don't know if it was Reddit or whatever it was, and people were just like, you know, would say the things that people, ignorant people say, like, how could nobody see this coming? You know, like, right. and all, all those, all those things with that flavor, you know, and first of all, first of all to people who say that kind of shit, fuck off. Like, fuck so far off, you know, because even if you do see it coming, there's nothing you can do about it. There's only so much you can do about it. You know, like, I, when I saw him on the decline, you know, I knew if I pushed too hard, he would run. I knew if I tried to keep him in my shadow, he would leave. And then what? You know, there was, there was a moment in time when I realized um, he was talking about his, his brother's suicide and uh, the, the journal entries that he found that his brother left, you know, following his death. And, and I, I remember that there was one time when I heard him say something, like, I, it clicked in my head, like, holy shit, it's just a matter of, it's just a matter of time. He's going to kill himself. It's just a matter of time. And um, that's a really, that's an odd sinking feeling. You know, it's like, for me, it felt like I was standing on the edge of an abyss, like knowing that's going to happen. Like, I'm going to fall. I just didn't know when. That's how I have, that's how I felt with him. And I think when, 
in my mind when I knew, when I realized that it was probably just a matter of time, it came, it became really important for me to learn as much as I could about depression, about mental health, so I could better understand him and maybe what he needed from me and what he didn't need from me and what would, what would push him away from me. And so even when you can, you think you can see these things coming, there's only so much any one person can do about it. I'm really curious what you did with that information, because I think that the question on a lot of people's minds is when you, when you have that moment or that, that sense of realization that, you know, something tragic is imminent, uh, what do you do? Right? Like how, how do you intervene? And you know, the common question is, well, did you, did you get them some treatment? And it's like, well, that's not always the path for everybody in it. And I've proven to be a little bit unpopular in certain circles of my profession where I go, not everybody needs an office visit to the psychotherapist with the master's degree and the, you know, the insurance billing. Sometimes what you need is a, is a good jog. You know, sometimes what you sure. need is a beer with some friends. And to, to, to a lot of us with uh, professional licenses, that sounds like heresy. And it's like, it's like we, we somehow hold the keys to the psychological kingdom simply because we went to school for it. And it's like, no, no, humanity got here on its own somehow without us because uh, we've only been around for like 100 years. <laughs> and so let's not take ourselves too seriously. But I think that's the, the follow-up question after what you, you just shared is like, so what, what did you do? You know, and what were the attempts that, ma- that were made? And where did you find yourself backing off maybe where you wish you would have pressed a little harder or maybe areas where you pressed too hard and you wish you hadn't or, you know, like help describe that whole context, if you would. Okay. Well, um, I'll rewind a little bit. So when Robert's brother, Randy, um, killed himself, uh, of course, like I really felt like I needed to be there for Robert. And of course, that's, that's what you're, that's very natural for you to want to be there for the person that, mm-hmm. that you love it. It doesn't even have to be your partner. It could be like a family member. It could be a friend. You want to be there for this person that you love. Um, and so I was insisting, I was pushing myself on him. And he was just, his response was to push back and he, to push back hard. And I think what I eventually learned that, yeah, I wanted to be there for him, but I wanted to be there for him for me because that's what I needed. And when mm-hmm. he was very plainly telling me that he needed space. And I thought, that's the wrong answer. I need to be there for you. I can, I, I, I can help you. I can, I can be all these things for you. And, but in reality, for him, maybe it was just his personality type that made him run from me. Because then I had an expectation from him. Um, I, and I think... And now having been on the receiving end of, of well-intentioned support, I, I know how it felt for me to have someone insist their help on me. And that's, in, in my case, that, sometimes that was the last thing I needed. Like, I just, that's, I needed someone to have, I needed nobody to have any expectations on me. That's so critical. And I want to pause there because I really want that to digest in the listeners' ears helping someone for them or helping someone for you and knowing the difference is very challenging sometimes, especially when we're in the middle of it, but it's, it's critical 
to understand the difference if you really want to get give help because uh, yeah. a, a lot of times you just make it worse right and it's like well how do you know <laughs> you don't you ask you know you yield yeah and that's very very challenging especially when we're all in pain you see pain you want to take away from the person not necessarily because you want to take away their pain but because you don't want to see them in pain yeah. and that's super hard yeah and when I realized that me being there for him was more for me than it was for him. When I finally understood that for myself, um, I let him know that I, I was always going to be there. I would reach out to him, but I had no expectation for him to reach back. I just wanted him to know that I was there. I did not need for him to talk to me if he didn't want to, but I was always going to be there. You know, and How was that received? How did he receive that? Uh, he he said he appreciated it, and I just I let him have his space, and and uh, and then he's the one who reached out to me. There you go. It yeah. does work. Was it hard for yeah. you to be patient? Oh my gosh, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. <laughs> I I really had to understand what it meant to to let someone go, and by letting someone go, I don't mean necessarily breaking up or anything like that. I mean, letting that person go. And if that, if that person decided that he didn't need me, I needed to be okay with that. And I needed to be okay with that because it was what he needed, not what I wanted. And, uh, that was, that, that was really hard. And it took about six months. Um, I don't want to say it took about six months. I'll say about six months after his brother's suicide, there was a turning point for him. And uh, and that's when things got better between us with regard to his brother's suicide. That's and, one of the hardest concepts for people in our field to wrap their arms around and embrace is the idea of respecting one's autonomy, the ability for the client, in, you know, in my case, to choose their own behavioral path. And not make what uh, Conti would call the error of omnipotence, thinking that we are responsible for their behaviors or their outcomes. Yeah. And uh, and really just being deferential and, and honoring a person's own liberty and ability to choose for themselves. And sometimes they choose destructive, and we don't like it. And that really hurts, because we like to believe that we have a bigger influence than we sometimes do. Yeah. Um, but it's you're not alone in that. Um, it's something that gets taught in school and then beat across our heads and shoulders uh, for years afterward. Like, respect the client's autonomy, respect the client's autonomy. Um, and yet, we have to counterbalance that with the idea of one of the other core ethical principles of our field, which is beneficence, meaning help somebody. we got to help, right? We can't just like, oh, whatever, do what you want, man. <laughs> like, that's not cool either. We can't just let people go path down paths of destruction and not try to intervene. Um, making peace with the... With, with living, you know, in that, in that tension is very, very challenging, though. And when I realized, uh, the moment that I realized that it was probably just a matter of time before he took his own life, um, I made a mental note to myself to ask him. At some point when I thought that it could come up naturally in a conversation without being an intense conversation that I was going to ask him. And one day I asked him flat out, are you going to kill yourself? I asked him flat out. And he said, um, 
No, I could never. And I believe that at the time he meant it. At the time, I absolutely believe that he meant it. But things change. Yeah, that's uh, I can relate to that because that story I, I told you both about Allison, <laughs> Bill was with me when I got the news. And Bill had met her before. And okay. I remember, like, to this day, I remember Bill saying, that's never the way to go out. It's selfish. He, like, criticized people that basically get to that point where they take their own life. And cut two years later, he did exactly what he said she was a coward for. Yeah. It's it's weird. You know, it always stuck with me. Because, like, he pulled me aside and gave me, like, a speech speech, like a coach. You know, like... You don't do that. Nobody does that. Like, that's the most selfish thing you can do. You never think, you know, when someone gives you that answer, you take their word for it. It's 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 hard to not, I hate projecting things on, you know, I'm not going to sit yeah. there and be like, no, uh, duh, it's deeper than that. You know, something's wrong. You know, you, you kind of got to say, okay, I, I asked you, I respect you, I trust you, that the answer you just gave me is, is yeah. the real answer. But I get what you're saying too, things change. Yeah, and you know, like I'll I'll say the thing that Robert shared with me that he read in his brother's journal that made me realize that it was probably just a matter of time was his brother. So his brother had been going to um, to a therapist and had had, or I guess it would be a psychiatrist, and he was on a bunch of different medications and he was on some experimental medications and Robert just saw his brother's health continually decline and, and his mental health didn't seem to be getting any better. And so Robert had his own, um, he had his own feelings on, on therapy and what it could do or what it couldn't do for somebody. And he felt that he was someone who understood himself so well at these deep levels that there's no therapist that could that could tell him anything that he didn't already know. And in a lot of ways, I believe him. I believe him because he understood people very, very, very well. But um, but then he had his own prejudices because it didn't help his brother, so he didn't think it would be able to help him. And when he told me that in his brother's journal, he wrote about uh, people thinking that um, suicide is, is selfish. Is mm-hmm. it, is, that's the most selfish thing someone can do. Um, but what his brother wrote was, what's selfish is everyone else wanting you to stick around to be, and being miserable. Like, that's what's selfish. That's selfish of other people wanting him to be alive with his own misery. And when... When Robert told me that, there was he had this look in his eye. And I and I remember thinking, he just found his justification. He just found his reason that made this okay. Right. Ugh. Yeah, it's it, what's really sad about that is that um it's not the permission granting that comes from watching somebody else go through it and then articulate their reason. That's that sucks, but there's no reason that 
a person couldn't have drawn that conclusion on his or her own. Uh, Robert, in this case, you know, could have could have easily just inverted that and said, "Well, you know, what's selfish is everybody else wanting me to stay alive." It's the comma to live in my own misery part that really sticks with me and really bothers me. And that's what's sad about that is that it invites that there's no other option. Like it's like in that person's mind at that moment, whether it's his brother or himself or whoever has ever had this thought, it's that this is all that there will be. It's a, it's a complete ignoring of possibility of healing, redemption, forgiveness, uh, letting go, health, happiness, all the things that are not misery, chaos, conflict, uh, that are, that are dragging you down into that, into those dark depths. And I think that's, if, if we can, if I can reach into the, the minds of people that I, I would ever interact with, I would say, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. And what Mike alluded to there is interesting. You used the word projection, Mike, um, because that's exactly what you're describing when you said you became the person you hated. Right. And then, um, uh, and then we have these moments in life where we go, Oh geez, I, I am now sliding toward that, which I detest or that, which I never thought was possible. There's a word for that and it's called shadow projection. Um, or I guess a phrase, and it comes from Carl Jung. And what the, the, the concept is, is that which we are so quick to point out in others, but so quick to deny in ourselves, is a concept that Jung talks extensively about. It says, beware of that, because if you don't learn to acknowledge that it's in you too, you are doomed to fall into that path. And so whether it's, no, I could never do that with regard to something horrible, or no, I could never do that in regard to something great, you're denying self. And it, and the more often we do that, we what we end up doing is carving out little pieces of who we could potentially be until we have almost nothing left. And then it feels very trapped. Like, like well, I've already declared affirmatively that I can't be that, I won't be that, I'll never do that. And, and then before you know it, you've got this little tiny sense of self that is lacking possibility. And of course it would seem like the world is small or that possibilities are limited because your own self-talk has declared that over time. Lo and behold, we end up, you know, becoming what we hate or, you know, something falling into a pattern that we never thought we'd do because we simply fail to hold all things in balance. Now, the problem with talking like this is that it's unpalatable to ears when we say things like, you know, well, you know, suicide is a possibility. Like, what? How dare you say that? It's like, no, it is. And if I take that off the table, what I've essentially done is invalidated that as an option, and it's and it's denying reality. It's it's almost psychotic to say that. You're like, oh, I could never fill in the blank. Well, yeah, you could actually. There's an old saying that says, if a human being has done something, it is therefore human nature. All humans having the same nature therefore have the same capacity to do anything any other human has done, for great or terrible. Whether it's high success and leadership, or it's you know doing horrible things to other people that get you in prison. Um, we need to have, we need to loosen up our conversations and our talk and our language about what's actually possible so that we don't end up pigeonholing ourselves in little tiny spaces that we don't think we can get out of anymore. Cause then we're labeled a flip flopper or inconsistent or whatever it is. It's like, no, you can, you can change your mind. You can hold lucid beliefs. Um, and God willing we do so that we don't, we don't back ourselves into corners. Yeah, Absolutely. One of the things, Myra, I want to talk about and touch on is, um, for those who don't know, you know, Robert 
took his own life with a firearm. Yes. Um, both of you were staunch to a supporters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you both trained. You both are into the gun culture lifestyle. Sure. Um, that is like the elephant in the room when it comes to the 2A Second Amendment community, right? Um, we, mm-hmm. We've been told to not talk about suicide and mental health for so long, and there's gun grabbers over there, and all they care about is getting you to open up and then take your firearms away from you. But it's one of the things that has just plagued us. It's plagued us so bad it, 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 from just the 2A supporter to the, you know, uh, military first responder, you know, uh, veterans. Uh, a lot of us look around and, and we lose a lot of people we love. What was that like for you? Uh, I don't know if there was any other incidents where people were like, the gun should have been out of the house. Was there any blowback from that or? Not that I heard um, not that I heard, not, no one ever said that to me. Um, I, I do want to mention that when his brother killed himself, his brother hung himself, but first his brother bought a shotgun to kill himself and he qu- couldn't quite figure out how to get the job done that way. Um, I don't know if it's because I, I don't I don't know f- for what reason he right. decided not to use a firearm, but he did buy a firearm with that intention and chose to hang himself instead. So yeah. I do you still blame the gun for that suicide? You know, like no, like this his brother had the intention one way or the other to do it. So. And in his case, it happened to not be a firearm. It, had, it ended up being a belt. Wow. You know, um, I have another friend who lost her brother uh, to suicide on Christmas. Um, he was a gun owner. He also hung himself instead. You know, so there, there was a time on social media that I brought up the, the, the fact, um, you know, why I, I, I address the, the uh, firearm issue with, 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 with suicide. And I, I brought up the case of his brother. I'm like, I, do I blame firearms? No. Right. No, no, no. Not at all. Um, I still carry. Like, I you know I still train sometimes. I, I still carry for self-defense. Um, I'm not really shy about talking about it to people who do own firearms I, I've talked to many people who own firearms and who are depressed and maybe are suicidal too, you know, and some of them have, uh, I want to say plans for if they ever come to that point where they take their own lives, some of them plan on doing it with a firearm and some don't want to be another statistic. So right. they're not going to use a firearm. They have, they have another plan. Yeah, I've met, actually, um, there is a writer in the firearms industry. He is a ex-military, you know, uh, saw some combat. And when he came back, he had severe PSD from Afghanistan. And it was really interesting because we had this long conversation, and he, he kind of said, hey, you know, Mike, if, if I didn't have the range of my firearm when I came back from Afghanistan, I wouldn't be here today. To tell you the story 
Um, but then, you know, one, he also added that there, one of the things that helped was he didn't want to give the industry another bad name. Mm-hmm. You know, like he, I, I thought that was kind of interesting that he was cognizant of that. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want to add to that statistic that they use against us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very interesting concept, you know, that, that you okay. can actually think about that in that frame of mind, right? Because you're in crisis and you think, I don't know, I don't, the mind is, is, it's crazy how that works. Yeah. When I, um, when I was reading through Robert's journals and stuff after he passed, um, I read parts where he talked about looking, like he'd be out hiking, looking for places, like, is this high enough? You know, um, wow. And stuff like that. And so it wasn't just because he had access to firearms. Right. I'm just trying to, to think about reading something like that. Uh, that's interesting. So that day, um, the day you found out when you, like when you found out and everything, what, what was your thought process? Oh, what, 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 I know what happened for me, right? So I'm kind of sure. curious. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to rewind a little bit more to kind of explain why Robert, probably another reason why he felt like there was no other alternative. Um, it had been his lifelong dream to get his family back together. All the religious discourse and this, that, and the other. Uh, this was when his brother Randy was still alive. Uh, Robert was the only one in his entire family, or in his immediate family, that had a relationship with everyone in his family. You know, including his parents, his brother that was still a Jehovah's Witness, and the brother and sister that had been disfellowshipped. Um, Robert was never disfellowshipped from the church, so his parents would still talk to him. But they would always talk to him under the uh, when are you coming back to the church kind of kind of deal. Um, but it was Robert's lifelong dream to get his family back together. And then when Randy killed himself, um, you know, the silver lining to that was that Robert briefly had his family back together. He had his parents, he had himself, he had his uh, brother Rick and his sister Sharon back together mourning the loss of their brother, Randy. Um, So for a few days, Robert had his dream. And then when the family was back together, the the father kind of took them aside and said, well, unless you're coming back to the the church, we probably won't be doing this again. And so with that, Robert lost his family again. His lifelong dream had completely been shattered. And to him, how, how do you feel when your lifelong dream just... It's, it's there for a minute. Yeah, you have it. You have it in your hands for a day, and then and then you lose it, yeah. just like that. It's got to be like holding water in your hands to be, huh. you know, like you could try to keep it there as long as you can. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah, and then, uh, and so the days kind of leading up, maybe it's the last couple weeks leading up to... Uh, to when he went missing, um, he was watching uh, reruns of Cheers on on Netflix, and that wasn't a show that we would watch together. Like that was just not one of the shows, and like, it was really peculiar to me 
like with like the way that he was watching the show because the way he was laughing at it to me it felt like I remember thinking in the moment like it's like he's reliving something like he's reliving memories and uh I thought back I'm like I thought that it had something to do with when his family was together as a family um and I you know we were we were in the living room and we were watching the show, and, and he got up to the kitchen to, to presumably get a drink. Um, but then he didn't come back. And so, like, I was already kind of paying attention because it was peculiar for him to be watching this show. And I went in the kitchen, and he was hiding behind a wall, and he was full-on sobbing. He was just sobbing. And I, and I knew him. Like, he is reliving something with his family at that moment. And so... I remember, uh, like, those days he just, like, the feeling that I got from him was he felt completely deflated. Just completely deflated. And I came home from work one day, and he wasn't home. That wasn't unusual, you know, for him to to not be home. Then I realized that I hadn't heard from him that entire day. Like, yeah, my my text to him kind of went unanswered, but that wasn't super alarming. Uh, so I went on his Facebook page to see maybe he posted something that I missed, and I realized that his Facebook page was down. He had shut it down. Oh. And, uh, and I knew how important that was to him for, for his business, for his work. Um, th- and that was when I started to panic. I texted his brother, uh, Rick, to see if he'd heard from him. I... I Texted a couple other people. No one had heard anything from him. Um, and then I was on the phone with his brother, and I was methodically going through the house. Okay, it's like maybe he went on a road trip. Um, he was actually had supposed he was supposed to leave that week to corner a UFC fighter in Canada. He was supposed to have gone, and I was like, well, maybe he went on a road trip to clear his mind because that's something that he did periodically but he never did it without telling me first um but i kind of had made up my mind and it's like until i knew anything else that in my mind that is what he that he had done so i went i looked for signs of things that he might have taken like a backpack extra clothes extra shoes something i didn't find any anything that i looked for I found, so I, I, like, I didn't notice any backpacks missing. I didn't notice any extra clothes missing. So that's building more into the fear yeah. of, yeah. Um, I opened the gun safe. I saw his passport. I'm like, well, <laughs> from wherever he is, he's not planning on going to Canada from there. Right. That was, that was my next clue. I, I looked for all the guns, <laughs> and there was only one that was missing, one that, um, that I knew he carried on, on a, day-to-day basis. Um, I started making phone calls to places that I knew, that I thought that he might go to uh, if he wanted to go on a road trip, and he was not at any of those places. So it was it was a waiting game for days. And then um, finally, uh, his brother and I decided to file a missing persons report after we figured out what a missing persons report 
meant, like what it meant, what it didn't mean. Um, and when Rick called to file the missing persons report, they had uh, made a couple, they had transferred his phone calls a couple of times and uh, they had just found his body earlier that morning. And so I want to say when he went missing was on a Tuesday and when his body was found, it was Friday morning. Um, and by the coroner's estimation, the his actual death very likely happened early, early, early morning on Wednesday. So my guess is at sunrise on Wednesday, and his body was found on, on Friday. And he, he, where did he, where did he go? Um, he was just outside of Red Rock uh, yeah. here in Vegas. Um, and this might come off really strange, <laughs> but uh, when I had heard on the phone, when Rick told me over the phone about where his body was found, I knew exactly where he was without, without any other information. Wow. Um, yeah. And like it, it might sound weird, but to me, it it actually. There was a weird reassurance in how well I knew him. Right. For me to hear like, oh yeah, uh, Red Rock. I think they just said Red Rock, and. Um, I, I knew it wasn't inside Red Rock. I knew it was outside of Red Rock. And I knew which dirt path he had driven down. And uh, when I got the police report with the pictures where the, where the vehicle was parked, it was exactly, it was parked exactly where I thought it would be. Now, what did that spot mean to him? Do you know? Um, I don't actually know what it meant to him because it was, <laughs> it was someplace that he and I had never been before together. Hmm. Um. And for him, and this is an assumption on my part, uh, but I believed he wanted to do it someplace that he and, he and I had never been together. That He knew I had never been. Right. So it wouldn't taint that for that me. That spot. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember that one of the scariest things that I've ever done in my life was when I, when he was missing... And I had my fears of what he had done. Uh, the scariest thing I've ever done in my life was open the doors to the spare bedrooms in the house, not knowing what I would find. But in my head, <laughs> I told myself before I opened each of those doors that he would never do that to me. He would never have me be the one to find him. And you were right. It's, uh, yeah, I can only imagine the anxiety of opening each door. Um, it, Myra, is this the first time that you've processed this in this fashion? Like, actually told the story, like, front to back? Or have you done this before? Uh, actually, <laughs> when I first met uh, Mike here at that, at that group dinner, we went and had dinner, just the two of us. Maybe it was just a few days later. I'm not sure how long it was after. Yeah. But we sat for about five and a half hours and uh, and told this 
story all the way through. And I think there, there were other times where I've told pieces of it to people. Um, because after, after this hit the news and everything, I got a lot of people from all over the world reaching out to me. People who knew him, people that only met him once, and people that had only heard of him, or people that had never heard of him until after the suicide. And, you know, for different reasons, I would tell different people different things. You know, just depending on the context of the conversation or what they were looking... Based off of what people would ask me, I knew that they were asking for themselves. You know, and so I would... Uh, you know, I, I would tailor what I said, or I would, I would, I would revisit... I would revisit parts of my experience for them, depending on what they needed from me. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're still, uh, Jake, she, she still does this to this day. I mean, there've been times when she's been hanging out at the house here and she has to go cause she has to meet up <laughs> with somebody that's in town yeah. that was close to Robert. Yeah. And I always feel, I kind of feel for you to be honest sometimes because, um, that's got to be the toughest thing is like, cause you're almost performing. You're not performing, but it's, it's sure. almost like, I know I have to go down there. I know I have to start reliving some memories and not everybody's in the mood to do that all the time. Oh, no. It's tough because you're, there's these little windows that these people are in town and they, they kind of want to feel Robert's soul through you. You know? Yeah. I, I, I find that kind of, um, interesting and, and kind of amusing but I also take it as a compliment or a mm -hmm. form of flattery oh, of course you know yeah. that um, sometimes I feel like you know people who miss Robert like sometimes they just reach out to me because they maybe they feel that they can get a little bit of him through me um, but at the same time like I I know in a lot of ways I'm very fortunate to have the answers for why someone would kill themselves because a lot of people you know who are kind of left behind after a loved one's suicide they don't necessarily have answers i have answers yeah. you know and like and i i kind of feel like it's a little bit of a responsibility on my part on behalf of robert you know to to share that information with people like so maybe it's foreclosure on their end Maybe it's for just a deeper understanding on their end. Maybe it can just help somebody realize some things about themselves or someone that they care about. But I kind of feel like it's a little bit of a responsibility on my part. Um, I know I don't owe anyone anything, but you know I feel I also feel that I'm very fortunate to to have what a lot of people aren't able to have for themselves, or if maybe that they're worried about someone that they cared about. Like, how can I help them be better listeners and a better support system, maybe, for, for someone that they care about? Because for me, that's really important. I, I, do, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I don't think there's any reason to question the motivation. I mean, yeah, you want to you help people. You want to provide closure. You, have, you feel the obligation, all that stuff. That's, that's great. I mean, that's, that's why anybody, any of us do anything that we we do it's because we we feel drawn or compelled or led to make a difference you know and um 
I appreciate that you said too. You're like, I don't know anybody, anything. It's like, yeah, nobody really does, but why do we do what we do? It's because we want to, it's because we, we believe that there's some bigger thing that we're contributing to. And, and you're doing that and you're, you're just such a, an awesome human being that you can be present for (laughs) all these people who just keep, you know, uh, asking and, the, the, the point that you made about having answers, I think, is really critical, too, because our, our brains want certainty. We want to understand things. And when we are faced with something like a, like a, a suicide, especially because it's probably the most tangible thing we have in front of us that doesn't give us access to the why, uh, man, to be able to provide some, at least a semblance of context for that, I think is incredibly powerful and healing. Um, it, it, and there is no one thing, right? It's like, well, his family, well, his brother, well, the pressures, the well, the whatever it is. It's like, no, it's all of it, right? It's, yeah. it's all of it. And there, and that's why there's no answer like, well, what could you have done? Nothing, you know? And, and um, we've got a guy that we interact with named Matt Miller, uh, doc, Dr. Matt Miller, PhD, from uh, the the VA, who is he's he's the director of the the VA's suicide prevention program nationally, and he uh, he wrestles with this, and he shared this on podcasts before and in conferences where, when he was director at an at an Air Force base up in Michigan, I believe is where he was. He was he was a suicide prevention coordinator at the at this at this Air Force base, and he and he lost his, his two of his friends. One of them was his best friend to suicide. And he's like, he says this and it's like, it's one of those things that we're not supposed to say. He says, I don't know if suicide's preventable. And he says, I really wrestle with that. And the reason it's so important to him to say that is because if you presume that it's a preventable death, and we like to say it's a preventable death, right? Um, then what that implies is that something could have been done by the survivors. And that's not necessarily true. And all it does is beget a series of, of shame and guilt treadmills in the people's heads and that's not fair uh it's not fair it's not necessary and it's not helpful so um i really appreciate what you're doing i mean i i asked that question about you know is this the first time that you've shared this like from beginning to end because it to me it felt like it felt like a therapy session it felt like i, I was just in a session with you you know counseling you and you're just going through pieces by pieces recalling things putting them in order um so, and, and now to hear that you've actually done it multiple times in multiple different ways, I think should be a lesson to whoever's listening. It says, you, you're not, there is no point at which you declare yourself, quote unquote, over it or through it. It's, it's just an ever evolving process. I mean, you're just, you're, you're still emotional and that's okay. Um, pain's deep, it hurts. And now, and now you're like the, the public relations representative. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not a position I ever wanted to apply for, but here no. I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a question for you. Um, when when this happens, right, and and like you lose someone that's close, uh, you know, for me it was to traveling with Bill. Like we we bonded those three months. You know, we got even closer. We had all these funny stories. I have all these funny stories all the way up until like it happened, and it happened yeah. where I left him, and then I had I took a flight from New Jersey, and I had to go back to Vegas, and not seven or eight hours later, I, I'm on a flight back, right, to pick up the pieces of what's what's happening. Um, and it was kind of interesting to watch everybody's 
reactions. So now you're in this weird world where you're trying to grieve and trying to make sense of this. And then you're watching like all of his friends or people that may have thought or think that they are the closest to him. And it, to me, it was always like, he's in a box. Like he's in a, he's gone. Like who the, who the fuck cares about what you think? You know what I mean? Or, or you think the flowers need to be arranged this way or you don't want this person or that person. Like it's over. You know, um, did you ever run into any of his friends where you were just like, you mother effer, <laughs> like, you know? Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. There are still some things I need to deal with with regard to that. Um, yeah, there's... <sighs> I mean... there. So there are, like, on... Okay, so first I'll say that there are so many people that I've seen uh, in interviews or that I'd seen in person and talked to or reached out to me, uh, you know, through some other method that they they blame themselves. Um, Or they, they... Mostly that they blame themselves for not having seen something, or um, in some cases, there 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 was one of his longtime friend that's in going to school to become a therapist and didn't see any of this coming, and then it it made him question like his own career choice, like if he couldn't see it in Robert, like what the fuck was he doing wrong? Like maybe he's not cut out for this line of work, um, and then. Like, I knew how good he was at hiding these things, and people only saw what he allowed them to see. Um, I don't blame anyone for not, for not seeing those things, or, not, or maybe not understanding depression, because I didn't understand it either until, until it was right there in front of me, like, watching him deal with the loss of his brother. Like, that's when I started to, to really pay attention to understand now, with regard to me running into people and thinking, like, just having some sort of, like, anger or resentment, yeah, yeah, there, there's a, there are a couple of instances and in situations where I, I still need to deal with some things, um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm working, I'm working towards it, uh, part of, part of that is, uh, how it, got to the media before his body was identified. That was a, that's a big thing for me. Um, I, ha- I still have a major issue with that. Um, and to me, that's kind of, it's understandable. But for me right now, it's still unforgivable. And I think the reason why it's unforgivable to me is because I haven't addressed it with that person yet. Right. And I think, I think uh, until I address it with that person, I won't be able to let it go. Um, as the professional among the three of us, I would highly recommend that and say that you are correct, (laughs) but, um, but something else you mentioned there too, is that, um, and I want to be careful here that I'm not like treading into diagnostics for a person I've never met, but what you've, you've shared paints enough of a picture to say that somebody who was raised in a household that is that rigid in their beliefs 
creates a, creates in the mind of the individual, especially at age six, and then again, um, the idea that they're they need to practice their uh, their show face, uh, and so when you say you know I don't blame anybody for not picking up on this because he you know he only showed you what you want he wanted you to see yeah and he was practicing it for like forty years yeah yeah like that's <laughs> a long time to practice anything. Every day, all day, to everyone. So you think about anything that you practice, that you get good at, how often do you put time in? Not that much. So he didn't get there overnight. And to think that, you know, like some magic wand would uh, undo it is, is foolish. Um, but also you, we can have compassion for ourselves for, you know, not knowing what to do or how to do it or whatever. Um, because he, he practiced that. He was really good at it. Yeah. It was, his defense was a master he kept, And why do, why do we do that? Well, it keeps us safe. Keeps us safe. I get it. Yeah, yeah so did, was there any... And the reason why I'm asking this is because, like I said, I, I think about when I when I was at, you know watching people about... Like, there were people that were fighting over, like, the fact that they didn't have a picture on Bill's little collage that they put on the wall or something like that. You see what I'm saying? Like, they're, it's really weird when people's, like, they want to crowbar themselves into. Oh, yeah, I've dealt with that too. (laughs) Okay, let's say, like, I can only imagine with him, because there must be people that were like, we were going to do this together. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, Yeah, there were, people's perception is their reality. Reality, yes, correct. (laughs) You know, um, and even like what I see, my perception, it's still my perception. So that's my reality, even if it's in conflict with someone else's reality. You know, so like who can say really like who's right and who's wrong. Right. You know, but yeah, there's, um, but I, I did notice and it was very rare occasions, super rare occasions that someone would actually try to make Robert's death about them. You know, that's very narcissistic. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know that narcissists can help being narcissists. Um, but but there is there is some of that that I, I, I also had to contend with, and it was... I don't know. That's, that's not my circus, not my monkeys. Right, right. <laughs> you know? I yeah. love that phrase. How did you... I mean, obviously, you you still deal with it, but when did you feel like you could breathe again after this happened? Oh, okay. So, um, so this is kind of a fun fact. <laughs> it's it's interest it's interesting. So, after Robert's suicide, and obviously, I knew his his upbringing with the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you know, all 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 everything that entailed for him. Um, do you know who Leah Remini is? Yeah. Okay, and you know, she did the... Uh, Jake, I don't know if you know who she is. The Hollywood yeah, actress yeah. that did the yeah, Scientology stuff? Yeah, King and Queen. Yeah, yeah. Yes. She's, yeah, yeah I, read, I read a lot about that, actually. And so, uh, I had heard a rumor that she was going to go after other cults, um, including Jehovah's Witnesses. And so... Robert had a longtime friend who was a fighter and um, of, of Robert's. He fought in the UFC also. His name is Nate Corey. Yeah. Um, 
Nate was also a uh, he's a former Jehovah's Witness who was disfellowshipped uh, by by his church and and his family. Um, him and Robert became very close. Like they both lived in Portland. Um, they became very close because of the same upbringing. And Robert helped Nate kind of let go or helped him cope with some of Nate's own losses through his disfellowship from the church and the family. Um, Nate gave this amazing speech at Robert's memorial. Um, and I, I he, he, he gave the speech to to give people an understanding of the why, why Robert would do something like this, what, why, how someone could get to the point where they would do some of this, specific to Nate's upbringing, because Nate's upbringing was essentially Robert's upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend of mine uh, professionally record it, and I wanted to make it available to people who couldn't attend the memorial, but really my motivation for wanting to get that on video was to get it in front of Leah Remini because I knew she was going to, you know, go after other cults, supposedly. So that video got in front of Leah and her production crew, and at the time, they were done filming whatever they were going to film. But after they saw that, they talked to Nate, they talked to uh, Rick and Sharon, um, and they went back to the network uh, to Annie to ask for permission to start filming again. And what aired as a direct result was a two-hour special on Jehovah's Witnesses with a panel of former Jehovah's Witnesses um, telling their stories and what it was, what leaving was like and how it affected them. And on that panel, people were Nate, uh, Rick, and Sharon telling uh, Robert's story uh, like along with Randy's. And so for me, that was a huge personal victory because not only did I get that message out, I, I got it out for Robert. Right. You know, and I think it was after then I was finally able to breathe a little bit because that was such a, such a motivator for me. And I think um, I had a lot of it anxiety to get to that point. Um, and then, see, the memorial was, so Robert died December 2017. We had the mo- memorial at the end of January. And I think that special was released the following August or November or something like that. So it was after that that I was able to breathe. That's, that's great, though. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't, you know, it never leaves us. Like, I, it, I, it's weird. I, I think about Bill every day. I, I've lost family members that I don't think about every day. And somehow, Bill crosses my mind every single day. And how long ago did you lose Bill? I lost Bill in 2009. Wow. I've had dreams, and Bill's been in them, and I scream at him. <laughs> because every time I, I fall for this, like, you're still alive, they feel real. Like, I remember the first time I was in a dream, and I wanted to, to kill him. Because <laughs> I was like, you're... You wanted to kill him for still being alive. No, I was just, no, because in my... It's weird. I, I'm one of those people that never remembers dreams. Okay. I, I really don't. Okay. Um, unless something, like, happens in it. Um, and, and one day, he showed up in a dream, and I remember, like, I was like, you're, you're, you're alive. Like, you're alive. Like, hmm. all of that was fake. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> and, and I got angry. And then I woke up, and it was just the weirdest feeling. But, you know, it's, it's something that he, he shows up in my thoughts. I think about all the laughing. Um, you know, I, to this day, he has a son that I'm friends with on Facebook. I, he's only met me once. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but, but I see that he follows, follows what I do. Um, you know, it, it, it's tough. It's tough when you, you have these larger than life people or, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, you have to have that memory every day. Like, did you have anyone be shitty towards you? Like after Bill's death? Uh, no, no one was really shitty. They just wanted answers. And I felt bad because I was super disappointing. Like I, I, I couldn't even, cause they're like, I had people like talk to me and they're like, Hey, like, what happened? Like, I know you were with him for so long. And then I had some of the same people in that same crowd, like pull me aside when I was alone. And they're like, okay, now we're alone. What, you know what I mean? Like, tell me. And I'm like, it wasn't, there was nothing he did or said. He was actually mad at me because we were playing basketball. I remember like the last, you know, I had to catch a flight and I was afraid I was going to miss my flight. He's like, play one more game, play one more game. You'll get it. And then um, I said, no, I got to go. And, and we were on the sideline. And he goes, uh, he goes, hey, like you haven't made any of your reservations to all these places that we, were, we had to go for work. And then also, you know, we played hard. We worked hard. We, mm-hmm. You know, we always went to places and we found the best way to like enjoy it too. Sure. You know, so he was angry that I didn't get these tickets. He was like reprimanding me. Like go back, make your flight reservations, knock this stuff off. Like let's go because it's going to be too late before we get so, like, that's the thing that always kind of freaked me out because mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about, and, and Jake, you, you probably, you know, you probably have some experience with this, but a lot of people say, like, people try to, like, close the door. Like, hey, you know, I love you. And I'll, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, or they're like, hey, like, they, they gave them something. Like, they gave them, hey, like, here's my collection of this. I just want to give it to you. You know, like, um, there's all these things. I, he had no tells. Yeah. It, you know, it's a really... <laughs> It's a really weird thing because, like, so someone's like, well, why did they kill themselves? Well, why the fuck do you think he was depressed? Well, why was he depressed? Because okay. I didn't crust, cut the crust off his sandwich? Like, what the fuck do you expect me to say? No, it's a lifelong thing. Right. Like, there's not one, you can't quantify something so succinctly, like, that people assume that you can. You know, it's like, how, how yeah, do you? Yeah, that's, that's, that's what we want. That's what we want now, right? We want everything customizable and presented to us in a nice, neat little silver platter, you know, gift wrapped from Amazon, delivered on the doorstep, exactly the way that we expect it. And when it doesn't happen, we don't know what to do. And I've, I've, I've ranted about this a lot. Like, we've just lost the ability to tolerate distress. But moreover, our culture doesn't know how to embrace mystery, like, mm-hmm. at all. And so when... When you don't have that answer, it's like, well, someone has to. You're right. closest yeah, it's like, to him. It's like well, no, you can't just do a Google search for an answer like that. Right. You know, that's <laughs> that's not the way this works. So one of the interesting things about Bill was um, it's funny how people. Okay, so like j- just to back up, Eagle Imports, the company I owned, Bill was the president of the company. Um Maria Kurnasovic, who, who was on the board of Walk to Talk America, was our CFO. Um, and I got a phone call at 4 o'clock in the morning from somebody on the East Coast, a friend of mine. His name is Barry. And Barry knew time change. So I remember when I saw the phone ring, 
I said, this can't be good. Mm. Because Barry's an adult. He's not going to call me at 4 in the morning. He'll wait till 7.30, something, you know. Yeah. Um, and he told me about, you know, Bill dying. Immediately I thought about a car accident or something. Sure. And then when he told me it was suicide, I went into complete shock. Like, and I remember, like, talking to my wife at the time. I was like, I, I have to go. And I, I made the phone call to the office because I knew the people in the office. Like, that was the... You know, that was important to me because we were like family. It's not a big company, you know. I remember, like, Maria answered the phone, and she said, um, there's a, a letter for you here. And, like, my heart dropped. Oh. And and I remember, it's funny, because she didn't want to, like, she goes, I'm going to overnight it to you, okay? It's in, it's in an envelope. It's sealed. And I remember I was like, just open it. Like, I don't care. <laughs> like, it, it, it's, yeah. you know, like... Once again, everybody's kind of shell-shocked, I think, and she was trying to be respectful of privacy and stuff, but, you know, to me, and I remember because I asked her, I was like, is it is it a big letter? Like, <laughs> is it, and she goes, it's, it's, it's thick. So now I'm thinking in my head, like, okay, he's, he, maybe he's going to tell us the story, you know, in this letter, and she opens it, and her voice was, was cracking, and she's like, it says, sorry, Mike, and then all it did was list every, like, account he had, every bank account, every, like, you know, mutual fund, everything. And that, and I, I still, I finally, I'm, I get angry sometimes because I'm like, that's, that's it, man? Like, that's what you're going to give me? Sorry, Mike? And, you know, like, that was, that was a tough thing to swallow. Like, yeah. you know, because I was kind of looking for maybe there is, there are, there's something here, um, and there wasn't. That's another reason, though, why I think people were asking me so much, because he left the letter for me. <laughs> yeah. When really it was just him tying up loose ends. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's weird to go, well, at least he was gracious in the pain that he left everyone. <laughs> right. 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 Okay, <laughs> I didn't have to muck through your accounts myself because you did it for me. Great. Like, Yeah. Yeah, there's some there's there's definitely some resentment that can follow that kind of thing. You know, and to your to your question about people closing the door metaphorically, I guess, before they go, I I remember getting taught that in elementary school, middle school, high school. It's like, you know, it's, what are the signs people start giving their stuff away? And the the more I get into this profession and the deeper I get into the suicide intervention, prevention, postvention stuff, it's just not true. And maybe that's true of kids. I, I don't know, but it, it, it just doesn't seem thematic. Um, if anything, the it's actually much more impulsive than that, and or it's building long, for a really long time, and people do their best to insulate their loved ones from the shock, right? It's not, it's not this like, here have, my, here, have my sticker collection. Oh, no, Johnny doesn't give stickers away. This must mean something. That's like, I don't know. It's, I wouldn't say we just ignore that kind of thing. Cause obviously it's just, it's too obvious of a red flag, I guess. And it's too, too outlandish. Um, I think the conversation, if we, if we're going to move forward into, you know, more preventative dialogue has to be just noticing the, the daily shift, uh, yeah, you know, throughout the day or from one day to the next, 
And we tell this to, to, to parents about their kids all the time. If you're noticing, you know, like, how do you, how do I know my kid's getting bullied? Well, know your kid well enough to notice the changes. And, and if they can't be chalked up to hormones in adolescence, you know, or, or phys- physical illness, then that's probably something to investigate. Same thing with our adult peer colleagues and, and relationships and, and romantic interests and so forth is we need to know each other so well that we can detect this stuff early and, and actually inquire. However, because our society is pushing us to be more isolated, and I don't just mean COVID isolation, I mean like we're on our fucking devices and like we don't know how to like talk to people in person, human to human. Um, we're losing touch and we're losing the ability not only to notice that stuff because we aren't intimate with each other anymore like we used to be, but also having the conversation requires an intimacy we haven't practiced. So it's like, even if you do notice your friend going sideways, if you haven't talked to him on a human level and all you've ever done is text, I I don't know how you broach the most sensitive subject in the world. So what we got to do is get back to just knowing each other, setting aside distractions, you know, resisting instant gratification, all the, the dazzling stuff that, you know, wants to fight for our attention and really just get back to being present with, with one another. That's, we got to love more and, you know, snipe less and all that stuff. But really, we got to know ourselves and each other well enough that we can check in. And then, in a very paradoxical fashion, I believe that if we do that, we just we won't have the distress that causes people to take their own lives. If we're all loving each other the way that we need to, needs are met. You know, parents aren't giving away their children because they fail to adhere to some ridiculous religious uh, ideology. Like, I, that still blows my mind. I, I mean, I... I, I've dealt my whole career, like the, working on twelve years now, of fractured families, and I just I can't I can't wrap my head around the idea of people excommunicating their children from their families simply because of some religious or- orthodoxy. I just blows my mind. Well, I mean, yeah, it blows my mind too. It kind of it's like who's his father? The the dad from Footloose. You <laughs> yeah. know what I'm saying? Well, you know, I still to this day have never spoken a word to his parents. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. It's like this weird purity of the blood <laughs> thing. It's like it doesn't even make sense. Like you bring a ch- I have children. You bring children into the world and they're yours. They're not you don't take orders from some person who like lives elsewhere and just runs the meeting on Sundays and Wednesdays like that doesn't even make sense I don't I don't understand that inverted structure but that's not for here Uh, maybe somebody can explain it to me one of these days Um, (laughs) well I I know we're up against it I want to ask uh, I want to ask one question of you we asked this of all the guests Um, you've been through a lot I know you've been through even more than just just losing someone to suicide you've lost quite a bit lately Um, how do you tend to your mental health so, <laughs> I, I, okay, so first of all, I've never actually been to therapy. I've never talked to a therapist. Like, this might these, be the only time. These, these are my eyeballs judging you right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is the closest thing. That we, 450 like miles away. <laughs> but um, I have found that I get my best thinking done uh, in emotional work done on solo road trips. Like, if I'm just, I get behind the wheel, I just drive, and I 
get a lot of internal work done. Um, I don't know if it's because of the music I listen to or, or what, but um, I, I do a lot of that. And it made me really introspective and reflective about things. Like, I remember there was a... <laughs> there was this... It was, it was in the middle of the night, one, one random night in the summer. Um, it was the summer after Robert died. So it was within eight months after Robert died. Um, I get a text from someone. It's like, it's someone that used one of those proxy apps to hide a phone number so I don't actually know who it's coming from. And the text said... So, Myra, I was wondering if you've killed any more boyfriends recently. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I, of course, my knee-jerk reaction was just anger, right? But then, um, and then I started realizing that it was anger and not, like, hurt or, or some other emotion. And I, and I started asking myself, why that was like why it wasn't actually bothering me like, like anger was my only was my only reaction nothing else and I started asking myself why why aren't if I was feeling guilty or something like what people would norm like a lot of people normally feel after after a suicide um if I was feeling any kind of guilt or regret like I think I would have reacted very differently to that you know um, and then I started to ask myself, well, why don't I, I feel regret? Why don't I, 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 I feel those things? And I, and I kind of, I deduced like, well, geez, like all the road trips that I've done and all the thinking I've done, all the, all the self-reflection, it made me really understand myself and my relationship with Robert and the kind of communication that we had and the kind of just relationship that we had. And, um, I un- I understood him better than I've ever understood anybody, better than I understood myself. Um, but then I realized that the more work I did on myself, the more I understood him, and even even in his passing. And it made me feel really good about our relationship. I'm like, well, I, that's why it didn't bother me. That's why comments like that didn't bother me. And I, 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 I feel really lucky. Yeah. That I that I don't feel those things, and you know, and I and and I realized it was because I I became such a better listener than I used to be. You know, and I I think that's a lot of it for. For feeling like you did as much as you possibly could have done that was in your capacity to do. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's it's interesting to to know you, and and I absolutely adore you and love you, and and. Everybody seems to really love you. It's, it's, <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's, you have that, you give off that. Um, but it's funny because like, I don't know you any other way than the great listener. Like, oh. you, you know, do you know what I'm saying? When I yeah. first met you, you yeah. like even that night at the table, you were, you were a great listener. You would ask a question and I could tell you focused to, and, and you've always been like that. So it's, it's, it's kind of cool hearing you talk about there was a time when maybe you weren't such a great listener because yeah. that's a, you know, you can get there people. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, and I really feel like most people can get there. They, I think a lot of people think they know how to listen, but they don't really know how to listen because they can't remove themselves from the equation, you know, and like, or 
if if you and I are having a discussion and it's I really want you to think a certain way, then then I'm going to tie how I feel to the results. You know? But if I don't tie myself to how to how you think or behave, it's not gonna affect me in such a way that uh I guess is unhealthy. You know, and I and I think a lot of people can get there. I just I want people to be able to be better listeners so they can be better support systems for themselves and for other people that they care about. Because not everyone's going to want to see a therapist. Robert didn't want to see a therapist. Like, I haven't actually seen a therapist. And it's not that I didn't want to. I, I don't know. I think I well, <laughs> talked to enough I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix are, it, you know? Like, it's working yeah. for you. That's, well, but then how do you know, how do I know it's not broken if I don't go to a mechanic every now and then? Like, how do I, well, and how yeah, do I run more efficiently? There's, there's a lot to cover in that realm too. And I, I mean, what you just set off there, I would love to have an entirely different podcast about with regard to self-exploration, the ability to analyze, the ability to listen to somebody else without w- wanting to say something <laughs> Uh, you know, or calculating the next thing to respond with, um, like all those things, all the the communication strategies, like that would be, that would make for an awesome podcast. And I would love to reschedule you just to have that conversation because I know how we do it in the office. I know how I do it personally, because I also don't make it a practice to go to counselors, but I'm also surrounded by them. Right. So, you know, the colleague conversations are pretty, pretty beneficial. Um, but like I said, 40,000 years of homo sapiens in their current form somehow managed to make it this far without like the profession of psychotherapy. Like, you know, maybe, maybe we can figure it out. And Oh, by the way, the people who like founded the whole profession, they figured it out and just wrote it down and gave it to others. So like it is possible. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I want to get back to your, your drives before we, uh, cause I do have to get out of here, but, um, your drives by yourself, do you schedule those or do, do you take them regularly or just as needed or like, how does that work? Oh, just as needed. Just as needed. Like, um, sometimes I I know I've got something kind of simmering that needs to come out that I haven't been able to quite get out or I haven't given myself the time to. And so I, I know um, I can tell when I'm about to boil over. Like, okay, I don't know what it is, Yeah. but I need to get it out. You become your own mechanic it's, at some point. Yeah. 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 Hit the road. Yeah, I there was uh, like immediately after his death, like I was always leaving town. I was always leaving town. I was, I wasn't usually flying someplace because I could not plan ahead. I didn't know what I was gonna be. I I didn't know what I what mind frame I was gonna be in the next week. That like the next day, the next hour, I had no idea. Like, I couldn't make plans with anybody. I didn't want to make plans with anybody. And, like, people that are like, well, you know, well, c- come do this with me, you know, on, on Saturday. Like, I, I don't know. Like, well, I, like, because a lot of people thought that, like, I just need to get out of the house. Like, no, I don't know what I need. Oh, that's, right. that's, that's the brain mush that results after trauma. It's like you just yeah. you can't think. I mean, that's that's normal. That's expected. Yeah, and like I had I had such a problem giving any kind of commitment to anybody for any time, energy, space, anything. Um, and so a lot of times I would just kind of just I I would I would just 
disappeared. And I think there were some people that were concerned that I was running, you know, um, that I was avoiding things. But like, no, actually, when I take these road trips, like, I'm like driving straight into my issues. <laughs> I'm driving straight into my issues because Uh, that that. is the way that I, that is the way that I, uh, I process things best. That's, that's the new (laughs) technique, by the way. I'm going to use that and, uh, prescribe it to people. Go for a drive (laughs) straight into your issues. Straight into your issues. (laughs) I I absolutely love that. (laughs) It sounds like something somebody would say in a movie. (laughs) No, or drive right in. Or make it the title of a movie. (laughs) Or the the name of a band. (laughs) Dude, did you hear that new Driving Straight Into Your Issues album? (laughs) Driving Straight Into Your Issues. My Native American name would be Drives With Issues. fantastic well Myra thank you so much for coming on and being so open Jake yeah man you have anything you want to add I mean, no, no it, was, it was great it was absolutely awesome and uh, I just I appreciate your vulnerability uh, it's amazing like we, we have these people come on this podcast Mike and, and they just they open up and um, share their stories and I think that these testimonies are going to be really empowering to a lot of people uh, down the road and um I think we're gonna. I think we're really gonna make some change here, man. I'm really. I'm really proud of what we're doing. Thank you, Myra. Yeah. Good to see you again. Thank you. All right. Well, on behalf of our uh, Walk the Talk family, our sponsors, and everybody who supports us, thank you, listening audience. We will see you again in no time, real soon. Bye bye.